I was just thinking about uh, today and thinking this is one of my favorite services, I think, in the whole year. Um, and I think it's one of my favorite services for two reasons, really. One is that very rarely, I think, in church life do we actually take a bit of time to genuinely spend time reflecting on the cross. We quite often talk about the cross and maybe we take communion, but we kind of talk a, a, about it in the midst of a whole load of other things. Whereas today, there's an opportunity to have space and time to reflect on the wonder of the cross. And the cross is the most momentous event that's ever happened in the whole of human history, as well as the most significant and life-transforming. And so it's incredibly powerful to take some moments just to reflect and to be uh, uh, overawed again with the wonder of what Jesus did when he hung on a cross for us. And the other reason I really love today is I love it when churches come together and worship. And I love the fact that we are one church. And the reality, whenever I reflect on the cross, um, I'm humbled um, and I encounter, as I encounter the bigness of God, uh, I'm hit again with how small I am. And then when I picture us all at the foot of the cross, it's like we're all small, um, but we're all at the same level and we're all one. And I love it that, that maybe all the other weeks of the year we may gather in our separate groups, but actually to be together and to say we're one because of what Jesus did on the cross I think is amazing and really, really significant. So for me, today's uh, really special and it's an honour um, to be able to lead us in our time really on reflecting on the cross. And um, what I want to do in the uh, 20 minutes, half an hour that we've got before we take communion is really lead us in a bit of a reflection on, on the cross. Um, Don read from Philippians chapter 2 uh, about Jesus humbling himself, a very well-known part of Philippians 2. Um, but Philippians 3 also has some amazing words about the cross. And uh, we're about to start studying the book of Philippians in Restore on Sunday morning, so I've been spending some time reading the book of Philippians. Uh, but I've been struck by these verses, um, which are well known, um, but I think really, really powerful, where Paul writes, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And I'll read them again, um, because I think there's a lot in these verses, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the first two lines. The next two lines, I'm a bit more challenged on, and then I like the last two lines. And what struck me as I've been reading and reflecting on these verses is I wonder whether often in church we focus on the beginning... And we focus on the end, but we don't take any time in the middle. And I wonder whether we lose something because we ignore the middle bit. And just that phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings, is quite a challenging phrase, isn't it? Because the word that's used there for the fellowship of his sufferings is the same that's word that's used in Acts chapter 2 for the disciples, um, the early church, sharing all things in common. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying that, that he wants to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection, but he also 
wants to share in understanding the sufferings of Jesus. And somehow, if he can share in understanding the sufferings of Jesus, then he might be able to be brought back to life and know resurrection power in a whole new way. And for me, I'm really struck by that because I I think in the Western world, often we preach a gospel that you come to Jesus and all the bad things will go and all the good things will come. But actually, that doesn't seem to be the gospel that Paul is preaching. Paul seems to be preaching, you come to Jesus and actually part of the journey is you will suffer. Which actually is what Jesus talked about, didn't he? If anyone wants to come after me, then they need to be prepared to take up their cross and follow me. And actually there's loads in the New Testament about suffering. And I've been reading quite a lot about the Chinese church recently as well. I've got some friends who ministered out there for a long time. And do you know what? In the Chinese church, they glory when they suffer for Jesus. For me, when I suffer, I pray that God will take it away. Because I don't want it. But actually, there's an amazing power for suffering to us encounter something that Jesus endured that can actually form something of the nature of Jesus within us. And I wonder whether for me, I shouldn't be so quick to push suffering away, but rather I should say, Jesus, I want to meet with you in this suffering. And the reality is when Jesus was crucified on a cross, he suffered more than any of us have ever suffered. So he knows what it's like to suffer in any and every way. He knows what it's like. But also that means he can be alongside us and also we can discover something fresh about him and his love as we invite him in to our suffering. A lot of people are paying attention now and thinking this through. Um, So I've just got a feeling that God wants us as a church in the West to rediscover the glory that he can bring out of suffering and at some points to actually embrace it and let God work through it and mold the character and nature of Jesus more into us through the process of suffering. So I'm going to pick out some of the ways. I've been uh, going through Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 and just looking at some of the different ways that Jesus suffered. And we won't take long on each of these, but my prayer really is that for some of us it will trigger maybe sufferings that we've been carrying or we've experienced And in some way this morning, we can touch Jesus afresh in those, but also know Jesus ministering to us uh, through that process of uh, sharing the fellowship of his suffering, as well as the power of his resurrection. Does that make sense? So in Matthew chapter 26, uh, you start the journey of the cross. And the first thing that Jesus suffers is betrayal, and betrayal at the hands of Judas. And the verses... um, in verse 48 to 50, the exchange that happens between Judas and Jesus. Uh, Judas says to the crowd that he's brought with him to arrest Jesus, whoever I kiss, he is the one who sees him. Immediately, uh, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. One of the things that can cut deep in life is when someone that we love and we've journeyed with and we've shared life with 
betrays us. And Jesus had done three years of sharing every single aspect of life with Judas, as he had with the other disciples. And they were the people that had received and experienced probably more of the love of Jesus than anyone else in their time. And yet it was one of those that chose to, de- to betray Jesus. Now, what, would that, what must that have felt like for Jesus? And I'm struck, again, just in those few verses, with the fact that um, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Now, in the culture of the day, that would have been a sign of honoring. For us, it's a sign of love and affection. That in the midst of a loving act, there was an act of betrayal. And Jesus' response to Judas humbles me even more. Because in the midst of the pain of betrayal, Jesus says, friend. And rather than responding in anger and hatred and hurt, he responds still with love and reaches out still with love. And I bet for all of us this morning, probably in one way or another, we've experienced betrayal in life. And so we can understand a little bit of this, maybe not to the extent that Jesus did, and maybe you have had a betrayal that's been similar to that. But you know what? In, if in the midst of our suffering, we can say, Jesus knows this, and Jesus understands, and Jesus is with me. And if we can speak to the people that have caused the betrayal to us, and still say, friend, we're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus through the fellowship of his sufferings. And isn't that incredible? I've betrayed Jesus, and yet he still reaches out and calls me friend. There's a false accusation. A couple of verses on that. Um, the first thing that happens when Jesus is arrested is he gets put before the religious authorities, who were the people who should have recognized he was the Son of God. It says that the chief priests and the whole of the council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. Now, why on earth were they doing that? Well, they were doing that because they were afraid and they were threatened. And do you know what we often do, or maybe it's just me, when I'm afraid and I'm threatened by someone, I try to find a way of putting them down because I think then I render them powerless and me powerful. And so the very people who should have been honoring who Jesus was were the very people finding a way to put him down because they were threatened and they were insecure. And yet Jesus endured that for us. Now maybe you've experienced people making accusations against you that have been totally false. And that hurts. It's a hard thing to go through. You know, often we say sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest loads of codswallop for the African members of the congregation. That means something that's rubbish. Um, <laughs> but because actually the power of words cuts really deep. And Jesus, at many moments through the journey to the cross and while he was on the cross, had abuse after abuse after abuse hold at him, and false accusation after false accusation at false accusation, and yet he took it on himself. And when I think about that, I think, do you know what? I need not to do that to other people. Jesus could have responded back with a whole load of stuff, but he chose to be silent. Do you know, I need to live by another way. And when people criticize me, 
And when people have a go at me, do you know what? I do really well to be silent and let God be the one who vindicates. This goes even more, the, the mocking and the ridicule. Verse 67, 67, 68, they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Shocking brutality and violence and hatred being thrown at Jesus. And how, how often, when we don't understand something, do we take out all of our anger and all of our inner frustration and throw it at someone else? Because somehow we think it will make us feel better. And Jesus endured not just the taunts, but actually the physical blows. Maybe you were bullied at school. Maybe people physically roughed you up. Do you know, Jesus went through a similar thing. And again, chose not to retaliate. Jesus could have finished it in a moment. Could have called for a legion of angels in a moment to blast them out. And yet he was willing to take it. He was willing to live under it. He was willing because he knew forgiveness was going to come as, uh, as a result of it. He had the desertion of friends. Talked about the betrayal of Judas. But he had his closest friends who let him down. There's the story of Peter. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. One of the passages in the run-up to the cross that really moves me is the uh, passage of the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm really struck by the fact that Jesus says to his three closest friends, come with me and pray. And his three closest friends three times fall asleep. And then obviously three times on from that, Peter betrays him. And there's clearly a connection between the two. But I feel like Jesus knew the Garden of Gethsemane was where he was going to make the hardest choice that he had to make, the choice to actually go to the cross. And in the point of making the hardest choice that he's ever had to make, he wanted his closest friends with him. And I think one of the saddest things for Jesus would have been when he found his closest friends in his moment of greatest need, asleep and not there. And then when he was on the cross, again, they were deserting him. And one of the painful things that can happen in life is when we face hardship and we feel all on our own. And yet Jesus knows and he understands. And if we're going to be Christ-like, we should let that uh, uh, create in us a desire in our heart that we're never going to leave our closest people on their own. We're going to commit ourselves to stand with one another, to share with one another, to, to go through the good times and the bad times with a sense of covenant commitment in our relationships. There's the injustice of the trial of Jesus. Now, after Jesus has been up uh, in front of the religious authorities, he then ends up in front of the governor, in front of the political authorities. So he ends up in front of Pilate. And the whole um, trial really is a joke, a real, real joke. It ends with when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, 
but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Do you know, that's one of the most cowardly acts of leadership that's recorded in the Bible. Because Pilate could have stopped it all. In fact, if he'd listened to his wife, he would have stopped it all. Not making a theological point there. (laughs) But take it if you want to. Because the night before, his wife was troubled in a dream. And said to him, don't have anything to do with putting this righteous man to death. But he doesn't listen. And what Pilate does is he washes his hands and he says to the crowd, it's on you. Now that is such a stupid abdication of leadership. Because he had the ability to have set Jesus free. But he gave up. He lost his courage in the moment that he should have stepped forward and delivered justice. And it was a travesty. It was particularly a travesty because at that time they had a custom, didn't they? And as part of the custom, they could release a prisoner. So there was grounds for Pilate to say, do you know what? I'm going to release this guy because he's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's been to all the marginalized. But instead of choosing to release him, he put it to the crowd. And there was another prisoner who could have been uh, released at that time, and that was the guy Barabbas. Now, if you know me very well, you know that I know names. I like names, and I like the origins of names. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? Son of the Father. Son of the Father. Bar means son, and Abba It's the same words that Paul writes when he talks by the Spirit of God. We say, Abba, Father. So Barabbas means son of the Father. So Pilate puts before the people a choice between someone who is called the son of the Father, who is a murderous villain, and someone who's lived out a life that has demonstrated he's the son of the Father. And the travesty is the crowd vote for the wrong one. I won't make a comment on the political systems of the world at the moment and the integrity of political leaders. But we're in a world that is ravaged by injustice. And for some of us, maybe we've suffered at the hands of it. Jesus knows what that's like. But also, if we're going to be people that are transformed by the fellowship of his sufferings, we need to be people that don't abdicate our responsibility but we need to be a people that are willing to stand forward and fight for justice and stand on the side of those people who are oppressed, who are downtrodden, who have no rights. We need to be the voice for them and not be the pilots in the situation that just wash our hands and say, oh, I hope someone else does something about it, or else not my responsibility. Do you know, we need to embrace our responsibility to make a change. And maybe that's part of what happens when we um, let the... um, the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus bring about a change for us. Then there's the shame and the humiliation. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. At the beginning of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were created, and they walked with God in the Garden of Eden, Eden, they were naked and knew no shame. 
as soon as sin came into the world, they started to cover up. And when we carry a sense of sin in our life, and when we carry a sense of shame in our life, we spend our whole life covering up. And we spend our whole life covering up because we don't want people to see the real us, because we feel like um, we'll be judged or condemned if we let people see the real us. So we present an image or we present a front. Jesus had all that he was carrying ripped from him, stripped from him before he hung on the cross. And that, in the, his day, would have been one of the greatest acts of shaming and humiliation. And yet he was willing to endure it for us. Maybe you've had experiences in your life where you've been ashamed. Maybe you've been, had experiences in your life where you've been humiliated. Do you know what Jesus knows what that feels like? And Jesus knows the damage that can be done by that. One of the good things is through God's grace, we can know forgiveness, and so we can be set free from the power of shame. But also, hopefully, we can build a shame-free society and a judgment-free society when we understand that it was acts like that that were part of the reason of why Jesus ended up hanging on the cross. We haven't even got to the physical pain. There was then the physical pain of the cross. I'm sure you've heard people describe the pain of crucifixion. Do you know the word excruciating came into being to describe the pain of the cross? Excruciating from crucifixion. The muscles of victim's legs were made to bend at 45 degrees so that they became extremely fatigued in severe cramp. In a compromised position, the crucified victim was physiologically forced to move up and down on the cross a distance of about 12 inches in order to breathe. The process of respiration caused excruciating pain mixed with the absolute terror of asphyxiation. There was increasing dislocation of wrists, elbows and shoulders and further elevation chest wall would make breathing more and more difficult. The person would become severely short of breath. Physiological reflexes demanded deeper breaths. The body would become starved of oxygen with greater amounts of carbon dioxide in the blood. It would result in tachycardia. Fluctuations in blood pressure and dehydration would lead to heart and lung failure. Thus crucifixion was the most painful death that could ever be given to anyone. The process of inflicting such extreme pain becomes, became synonymous with crucifixion and adverse pain due to it started to become known as excruciating When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Do you know, normally when someone was crucified, they gave them wine to drink mixed with gall, 
because it was a sedative and it would take the pain away. And when Jesus realized what they were offering him, he refused to have it anesthetized in any way because he was willing to take the whole of the pain of my sin, your sin, and the sin of the whole of human history and to suffer under it. Isn't that amazing? How many times do we try and anesthetize our pain? Maybe because we're not brave enough to confront it and let Jesus, invite Jesus into it to bring some transformation. But Jesus wouldn't lessen any of that. He took on the full force of it. It was the sense of abandonment. One of the last cries from the cross. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the engulfing power of sin, the engulfing power of sin, that led darkness to fall on the land at midday and stay for three hours. Because physically, it was a representation of what was happening spiritually for Jesus as he was absorbing all of the sin and sickness and uh, heartbreak of human history. And as he absorbed all of that, you get to the point of a cry. Because this was the first time that Jesus knew what it felt like to be separated from God. And, in the, and knowing that our sin separates us from God, receiving the power of that on his life led to the desperate cry, my God, my God, this is what it feels like to be forsaken and to be separated. And Jesus was willing to go through all of that so we could step out of our place of being forgiven, and uh, of being forsaken, and be reconnected in forgiveness and brought back into oneness with our Heavenly Father. And finally, there was death. Loads of people fear death. Actually, Jesus broke the power of death, so there's nothing to fear. Jesus cried out again. And the word that's used there for to cry out is the same word that's used for a cock crowing. You know when Peter denies Jesus three times, then the cock crows. And the cock crows because it heralds a new day. And Jesus cries out in the same way, heralding a new day, heralding the fact that mankind, you and me, can be forgiven, that the power of death is broken, that we can be united with Christ today, every day, and into eternity because of the wonderful power of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross all those years ago that we celebrate today. I think it's really powerful, significant, to take some moments to reflect on the sufferings of Jesus and to have fellowship with them so that then, when we take communion, which we will do in a few moments' time, we can maybe touch something new of the power of what Jesus did all those years ago and maybe out of that know more of the transforming power of Jesus and the resurrection life of Jesus 
being released into our lives. Just take a moment just to pray and to reflect. I know I said a whole number of things, but maybe there was particular aspects of the cross and what Jesus endured that spoke to you this morning. And in these moments, why don't you just reflect on that for a moment? Jesus, I don't know that my physical mind is ever going to fully grasp what you did for me when you hung on a cross. And Lord, thank you today for moments where we can remind ourselves of the pain and the cost the betrayal, the shame and the humiliation, the mockery, the injustice and the physical pain. And thank you, Jesus, you were willing to hang there until the price was all paid, until the work was fully done until you could cry, it is finished. And I pray today, Lord, in these moments as we reflect on your death, Lord, I pray the reality of what you did might become more real for us. And Lord, for those of us who are maybe suffering at the moment or struggling with challenges or maybe you've still got live pain from where we suffered in the past. Lord, we invite you into the middle of that suffering. And we pray that you will use that suffering to make us more like you. That as your people, we might increasingly become people who act, look, love in the same way as you did. And today of all days, we simply want to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.